Chapter 42 of The Goddess of Atvatabar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. The battle continued. The Royal Fleet formed a wide semicircle a mile off and reopened its guns upon us. An unlucky shot struck one of our seamen and cut off his head. A perfect storm of shot rained upon us, so destroying our hurricane deck that it was no longer of any protection to us. The enemy, encouraged by their success, closed in upon us. What we feared most of all was an attack by the wing jackets, against whom neither our heavy guns nor superior speed would much avail. Professor Rackiron aimed the giant gun right into the centre of the enemy's line of battle. The shell struck the middle ship and exploded. All three vessels were scattered half a mile apart and made complete wrecks. The Polar King darted forward to pass through the breach made in the enemy line. We found this a matter of difficulty, for the enemy, seeing our move, closed the gap in front of us. The ships ahead would have barred the way, but to prevent their doing so, we threw a shell of terrorite over the bow of the ship into the water. The sea rose on either side fully half a mile into the air, in solid pillars of water. In the confusion, we burst through the ranks of the enemy and were once more in open water. The Admiral must have been exasperated at our escape. He followed us as before in close rank, firing as he came. We now saw that he was about to change his mode of attack, for, hovering in the air, a rapidly growing swarm of Fletchermings were preparing to give us a hand-to-hand -hand combat. Each vessel furnished a certain contingent to the attacking force, until the aerial battalion numbered about 5,000 men. Our position seemed hopeless. What could less than 80 men do against a host of 10,000? At close quarters our terrorite guns would be useless. With loud yells the Fletchermings swept down upon us. Fearing our guns they kept open rank and spread around the ship. Aiming at the densest part of the enemy we destroyed about 500 of them, but quickly rallying again they were upon us. We were ready for them. Our battery of 12 terrorite guns, including the magazine guns and musketry, rang out a terrible discharge. Under the withering fire and fearful explosions, our foes fell back. The sea around was strewn with dead and wounded bodies. Luckily for us, the only weapons possessed by the enemy were their magnetic spears. The wing jackets, rallying again, swarmed upon the rigging and covered the ship like a cloud of vultures. Ere we could again discharge our guns, several of our men were beaten down by sheer force of numbers. They made splendid use of their deadly spears. The ship's crew, re-attacked between discharge of the guns, were many of them stunned and killed. The enemy, after each discharge, renewing the attack, being constantly reinforced from the fleet. It was possible that we would be conquered by the fearful odds against us. Our ability to keep up a fire from our guns grew more and more difficult, owing to the incessant attacks of the enemy and the vast accumulation of their dead bodies on the deck. The spears of our foes were more formidable weapons than we had supposed, for their touch was death. It was evident, notwithstanding the carnage, that our men would be obliged to surrender, owing to sheer exhaustion. As soon as a wing jacket dropped from the ranks of the enemy, another took his place. Our guns covered the sea with their dead bodies. The Admiral was determined to conquer us at any cost, for he rightly surmised our victory would be a terrible blow to Atvatabar. To remove ourselves as far from the fleet as possible, I directed the ship at full speed ahead for the outer water. The ten ships that lay across the entrance to the harbour would have to be destroyed, notwithstanding the ceaseless attack of the Fletchermings who followed our every movement. We acted solely on the defensive, and managed while repelling the most furious onslaughts to throw overboard the dead bodies of the enemy. In the midst of the constant fighting, 
we managed to get the terrorite guns into position again, and, when within a mile of the blockade, fired the entire battery into it. Our shells sank every vessel they struck, and broke several others from their moorings. Several more shots destroyed the remaining vessels, but only leaving their crews like a swarm of hornets free to attack us. This, however, was a minor matter, compared with possessing the freedom of the outer sea. We rushed over the spot where the ships had been anchored, and soon left the pursuing fleet far behind. The wing jackets, reinforced by the crews of the blockading fleet, renewed their attack. Having learned the terrible power of our magazine guns, they contented themselves with making attacks on unguarded points, but fifty sailors were thus engaged, while the remainder of the ship's crew, including the officers, worked the guns with a will. The revolvers of the enemy disabled us considerably, but by firing our magazine guns in every direction, we kept the ranks of the flying enemy pretty well thinned out. Our tactics were to keep the foe divided, if possible, and destroy the attacking force in detail. So long as the sailors could stand by their guns, we were safe. We could outstrip the fleet in speed, thus reducing the chances of our immediate antagonists being reinforced, for those who at first attacked us melted rapidly before the withering fire of our batteries. Finding themselves unable to secure the ship, even with such enormous sacrifice of life, the Fletchermings suddenly retreated to the fleet, leaving us free to rest ourselves and look after the wounded. The terrible strain of the fight had utterly exhausted the sailors, who had fought for fifty consecutive hours without rest or refreshment. We tumbled overboard the dead bodies of the enemy who had fallen upon the deck, and buried eight of our own sailors who had also been killed. Several men were wounded about the head and neck with spear thrusts that had failed to kill, but none seriously. Captain Wallace got an ugly wound in his neck, but it was not sufficient to keep him from duty. Flathootley, in slaying a Fletcherming, received a wound in the hand that required the attention of the doctor. Professor Rackeye and an astronomer Starbottle passed through the fight unscathed, while Professor Goldrock suffered from a broken leg. Our helmets, provided originally for triumphal purposes, had proved of the greatest possible value and saved many a life on board the Polar King. All this time we lay in full view of both the enemy's fleet and the entire kingdom. It seemed to us a strange thing that the Admiral did not continue the fight with his reserve of Fletchermings, who could easily outstrip the ship in their flight. He still possessed thousands of wing jackets who had never been engaged in actual conflict, who might have relieved their exhausted comrades and in time have forced us to surrender. Was the supine conduct of the Admiral caused by a panic at our power of havoc, or did he think my retreat to sea really an effort to escape the country? If his truce was caused by a belief that he was unable to cope with us, he might have called the Waleels of the King to his assistance, but possibly the pride of the service prevented an alliance with the army for naval conquest, more particularly where the naval forces outnumbered the enemy two hundred to one. The scene of battle lay in full view of the entire nation, just as the kingdom lay in full view of ourselves. The nearer inhabitants could see the movements of the ships and sailors, and the progress of the battle so far was known to everyone. If the impression was favourable to the Polar King, doubtless there would be a demonstration in favour of the Goddess. If not, it would be because the capture of our ship was considered certain. We lay too at a distance of ten miles from the enemy's fleet, awaiting the renewal of hostilities. End of chapter 42